This is an ABC podcast. When you watch an underwater documentary, there's a certain feeling you get being in that magical, unfamiliar place where sea plants wave in the currents, gravity means nothing, and creatures with the most spectacular colours float and dart among the coral. For years now, Professor Peter Godfrey-Smith's been swimming with one specific type of sea creature, the cephalopods, the squishy invertebrates that include octopuses, cuttlefish and squid. But Peter is not a marine biologist. Peter's a philosopher, a philosopher of science at Sydney University. And he's intrigued by the remarkable intelligence, if you can call it that, that cephalopods display in their ability to communicate and to move and to interact and to attack. These are animals who are very much on the smarter end of the scale, but their bodies are so radically different to ours. And by swimming amongst them and observing them and understanding their brains and nervous systems, Peter thinks they might open a window into one of the most profound mysteries in science, the mystery of human consciousness. Hello, Peter. Hello, Richard. Nice to be here. I've seen videos of giant cuttlefish. We're talking about like about a metre long, aren't they? Thereabouts. Yes, yeah, about a metre long. And they look like, to me, they look like billowing curtains of fabric sort of attached to a bunch of tentacles most of the time. Tell me about this fierce cuttlefish you encountered in Cabbage Tree Bay near Manly Beach in Sydney, please. Sure. Cabbage Tree Bay is such an amazing place now. It's a, it's a sanctuary where so many animals now can be found in, in large numbers, including giant cuttlefish. There's a particular couple of ledges uh, quite close to the shore where I've gotten used to meeting giant cuttlefish and visiting them. And you encounter all sorts of different reactions. There's been a couple who've been quite friendly to me. Some of them are very indifferent. And occasionally uh, you realise that you're definitely not welcome. Uh, there was one particular time I turned up and I saw some moving arms. Uh, I think your description of them in terms of the sort of billowing fabric is, is a good description. Uh, we could also say it, they look a little bit like an octopus attached to a turtle or mm. a hovercraft or something like that. So you've got a body and you've got arms on the front. I turned up in there with these arms waving not in a particularly agitated way, but when I moved closer, which I often do to, to, to meet the animal, this one was extremely irate uh, at how, my how presence. How did you know? How did you know it was irate? Well, always a question with these animals, right? How do you read from their behaviour what's going on inside? In this case, there was a dramatic series of colours, these blotchy oranges, uh, welts of white and silver... The arms were turned into what looked a bit like spears in some cases or, or jagged pieces of lightning. And that's a, not a relaxed pose. No. So it looks like a fairground attraction suddenly, does it? Uh, that makes it sound more benign, I think, than, <laughs> than it really was. It, it had a genuinely hell-like malevolent appearance. And I, I, I backed off waited a bit, came forward a bit to see if it would be a bit less concerned about my presence, but it was exactly the same. And it came rocketing out at me, looking like a kind of jet-propelled medieval siege machine with paraphernalia <laughs> everywhere. Backed off again. Eventually I realised this was not going to be an animal I'd be making friends with. Right. So when you backed off, it then the, it, the lights started to, 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 to wink off on it, did they? And then you came close and then the lights flared up again. Is that how it was? Right, yes. And were you able to ever calm it down as you got closer to it? Not, not with this one, not really. I mean, in, in a case like this, I don't think there's much to be gained by persisting after a certain point. Now, I know, I know what neither of us must do, particularly you, must not do in these circumstances is to project human emotions onto such creatures. Nonetheless, it seems to me you intuited there was some kind of an angry response from this creature or a fearful response. Was that your intuition at the time? Not fearful, I think, because of the, the attack behaviour, the mm. fact that he came out, and this was a he. Interestingly, 
the female giant cuttlefish have been quite a bit more aggressive to me. I mean, not many are aggressive, but if they are aggressive, it tends to be females more often. This one was a male and very aggressive. I wouldn't say fearful because of the, the willingness to advance, to sort of come out at me. He had plenty of room under the ledge just to retreat if he wanted. He could have just gone back and hid. But no, this was definitely an attempt to get me out of the area. <laughs> like I said, you're a philosopher of science. How is that different from the other kinds of philosophers who are concerned with, you know, how to be a good person, where there is, why there is something rather than nothing in the world, that kind of a thing? What does a philosopher of science concern themselves with? Right. I, I think philosophers should not specialise too much. I think philosophers should be interested in everything, roughly speaking. Here, here. Yes. Now, and it's not possible to be equally interested in everything, but the idea of philosophy as a discipline that's always looking to take a step back from the details and think about the big picture, that kind of big picture vision of the world, I think that's what philosophy is all about. Now, within that larger project, there are some philosophers who are particularly concerned with science. And as, as I see it, there are two ways of, of doing that or two ways of being that kind of philosopher. Firstly, if you want to understand the world and human activity, science is an amazing form of human activity, its achievements, its peculiar structure, the controversies around what we can know and how we might ever know it. That's one thing you might try to understand as a philosopher. And there's another side to philosophy of science in which science is not so much the subject matter, what you're trying to understand, but it becomes a resource with which you try to understand other things. Right, the tool, not the thing itself. That's right. Right. Yeah, and I do, I do a bit of both of those. This project with animals and invertebrate animals like the, like the cuttlefish is, very, is on that second side, right? So we, I'm trying to understand from both personal encounter with the animals and from scientific work what they're like, what's going on inside them, what they can do, and from there trying to understand or make some improvements on our understanding of the nature of the mind, the place that mind has in the world and so on. Yeah, it's hardly a bigger question really in, in, the, in the history of the world. What on earth is this mind that we're thinking with and I'm engaging with you at the moment? What is this kind of weird thing that we all have that is, is the mind? Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, one of the reasons why these things are so hard to understand or so hard to come to grips with is because we're talking about minds understanding minds, aren't we? This is like the it's impossible for the mind not to get in its own way, perhaps, when you're trying to figure out what on earth a mind is, what on earth consciousness is. Right. I think sometimes getting in its own way is exactly what we can, uh, we can encounter. When we think about the relationship between the mental and the physical, when we think about how it's possible for just an array of chemicals and physical things interacting in physical ways, when we think about how that might be the sort of thing that could also amount to experience, felt experience. There, is, there are situations where the, the question gets us in a tangle because we are simultaneously experiencing certain conscious thoughts and imagining their realisation in the physical. And once you do that, it seems that the two are just so different and quite separable. You could have the felt first-person stuff going on in the presence or absence of pretty much anything uh, in the physical world. It seems that there's this uh, separability of the two, but ultimately I think there's not that separability. Ultimately, we are biological organisms with unusual sorts of activity in our brains, and that's what experience is. Experiences are brain processes, and we have to just work through the fact that our particular point of view on the mind has this, this duality. There's the kind of third-person point of view on the material goings-on and the first-person point of view on experience as felt by the individual. To, to me, it always reminds me of like one of those internal inquiries the police perform upon themselves sometimes. You know, can you rely on that report into internal corruption within an organisation when the report itself is internal? Who watches the watchman is, again, the problem here, isn't it? It's right. It's related. To, I'm not. Yeah. I should be very cautious about police corruption. Well, I, I know. Well, yes. I like metaphors anyway. Uh, yeah. Well, but, but so so what you're saying to me then it sounds to me that if, if you approach something like a cephalopod, an octopus, or a squid, which is like I say on the more sophisticated end of brain animated creatures on this on this planet, is this a way of avoiding that 
trap of the mind, humans being stuck in its own mind. Like trying to look at what's going on in a cephalopod's mind and is a way of trying to escape our own skulls and, and looking at a different way a creature might be conscious in this world? That's an interesting way of looking at it, which I haven't thought about before. That's not how I have thought about this side of the project. And I suppose I think that the problem we were just discussing and that relationship between first and third person views, it's just going to come back inevitably. No matter what. No matter what. The, the reason why these animals in particular are so important to me is the fact that they are firstly behaviorally very complex animals. As you say, they have large nervous systems. They can do a lot. They are active, in, uh, inquisitive, exploratory sorts of animals. Inquisitive. Yeah, they are. Yeah. A lot of cephalopods, especially octopuses, are quite inquisitive. They like novelty. They like novel objects. So they go through the world going, oh, that's interesting, do they, sometimes? Octopuses, I think, yeah. in particular. You see, that's, and that's, that's something that humans find attractive, and therefore we're going to be interested in that. Again, aren't we? This is the it, same thing. It's attractive and it's yeah. a human-like yeah. feature. So they have those human-like features... And they also are miles from us in evolutionary terms. Uh, they are they're related to us. All animals are related genealogically. But the relationship is very distant. A cephalopod is more closely related to an oyster or a clam than to us. So that, that really is a long way from us in evolutionary terms. The, the amount of time you have to go back before you reach a common ancestor is, is so great that they are a kind of independent experiment, a separate evolutionary experiment in the evolution of the mind. So you can find out more by looking into these creatures than you, in many ways than you might by looking into the apes and monkeys, which is what, what has often preoccupied us in the past. I, I think they have their own importance. They yeah. have their own importance, but they also are so close to us genealogically and historically that uh, certain, certain similarities are hard to interpret because on the one hand... You might think it's because that's how you need to be in order to be an animal with a mind. On the other hand, there are close relatives, so all sorts of things will be in common anyway. Whereas with an octopus, they're not our close relatives. So when we find similarities, when we find that inquisitive nature, when we find sensitivity, when we find communication of subtle kinds, it's not because of a shared history. It's something they invented themselves. What made you think that this could be an interesting field of study for you as a science philosopher, encountering cuttlefish and octopuses and the like. When, when did you first realise there might be something there? It, it was the particular encounters with the animals. What, what happened was I've spent most of my academic career in, in the USA, in various universities in the States, and began to just come back more often to Australia in the northern summers and got a little tiny place, a tiny apartment in Manly at, at Cabbage Tree Bay, the place where that initial giant cuttlefish encounter <laughs> that we discussed took place. That place, Cabbage Tree Bay, has been made into a reserve fairly recently, last 20 years, and it's just by chance I happened to choose that area without realising Oh, that's coincidence? Yes, right. that was coincidence. Wow. Yeah. And began spending a bit of time in the water and immediately began meeting these extraordinary animals and first I just thought, right, I have to work out what's going on with these animals. I hadn't really heard much about uh, giant cuttlefish in particular. Octopuses are somewhat more glamorous animals even back then. This is about 15 years ago now. But when I began to encounter giant cuttlefish, especially the colour changes, the fact that you're looking at an animal that can change its entire colour in much less than a second, about a quarter of a second, they can go from red to yellow, produce stripes and, and blotches and patches, moving patterns. The fact that they were these living video screen animals mm. was immediately, of course, very striking and a big deal. It's like a Times Square billboard, isn't it, at times? Yeah. But much better. Mm. But much better. Mm. And then I began to wonder, you know, who are these who are they? How closely related are they to other animals? What are their relationships? What kind of nervous systems they have? What kind of lives do they lead? And then it became apparent, both with the giant cuttlefish and the octopuses, that they have that, that unique combination of characteristics being so far from us and being so complex, unlike most of the invertebrate animals that are their kin. How do you engage with them? 
as a philosopher then. Are you interested in their sense of self? And do you think they have a sense of self? And is that even a meaningful question to ask? That's really one of the hard ones, especially with octopuses who have been studied more with respect to their cognitive uh, capacities and their their nervous systems. It, it's, a, it's a particularly hard one because if I try to imagine being a cephalopod, uh, either a cuttlefish or an octopus, there's firstly the sensory side. And I think we can make some headway in imagining ourselves into the situation of an animal that has, well, firstly, eyes that are very good eyes and fairly similar to our eyes, independently evolved, but a much richer kind of tactile and capacity for chemical sensing. When an octopus, for example, touches you, it, it's tasting everything it touches. Those suckers have have taste receptors and subtle uh, receptors with respect to the mechanical side, shape and and texture and things like that. So it's feeling its way through the world very differently from us to begin with. Right. It's a it's tasting mm. and feeling and seeing its way through the world. I can imagine all that and I make a certain I can go a certain distance in trying to think my way in, into that sort of creature. But in the domain of selfhood, what kind of sense of self they might have, here we really encountered particular I think special mysteries in the cases of these animals, especially octopuses, because they have a much less centralised nervous system than than we have or other vertebrate animals. Vertebrates like us, fish, you know, birds, primates, and so on. It's the brain is a bit of a CEO, really. It, it's a kind of centralised control structure. In the case of octopuses, in particular. Very different design, a brain that spread through the body. Spread through the body? Spread through the body, yeah. More than half of the neurons in an octopus are not found in the head in that central area. It's quite a big brain there, but more than half of the neurons, the nerve cells are spread, especially through the arms and the upper arms. There so it's these... thinking in its arms, in other words. is that? I know you don't like words like thinking, but nonetheless... No, I'm okay with words uh, like you? thinking okay, in, right. in, in many cases. <laughs> we, we don't know. We don't know. What all kind right, of capacity is in the arms themselves. Nonetheless, there's, there's brainy, braininess in the, in, the, in the tentacles, in other words, you're saying. It's, fa it's fair to say wow. that. And, wow. And <laughs> there's the question of how much is going on there and also the question of whether you should think of each individual octopus arm because each each arm has a lot of neurons in it whether you should think of them as separate quasi beings or whether it's a single network that is the arms as a whole some people have argued that there's rich connections in the nervous system connecting the arms in the upper part and rather than thinking of a central brain and eight additional controllers, you might think in terms of a central brain and a second, you know, a second arm-based controller with some unity of its own. And or, or a dual consciousness, I wonder. We can't know, I suppose, but is we that can, possible? We, we, can't, we can't know. I, I don't think we can know now. I, I think, you know, I'm not sceptical about these questions. I think you know, people sometimes say, oh, we'll never know. Well, I don't think that. I think that we're gradually accumulating little bits of knowledge and that in the future we, we will understand the basis of experience in, in us, in them, in animals generally. Again, we can't know this, but, you know, humans have different forms of consciousness. You know, we have the, the, the our present living awake consciousness. We have our subconsciousness that runs right when we're asleep and we're dreaming. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? I wonder how these things might divide, if at all, within a creature like an octopus. These are fascinating questions, aren't they? We, ones we don't know the answer to, of course. We don't. My hunch is, I mean, if, if I had to put a bet down, I would bet that there's there's one self, although a very diffuse self, mm. rather than nine or two in the octopus, but the kind of boundaries of that self are not fixed. For example, if an octopus is just resting, hanging out, its arms will sometimes explore in a way that looks like it's autonomous, but an octopus you know, autonomous with respect to each arm or some of the arms. But an octopus can also pull itself together, sometimes quite dramatically. It can suddenly become very coordinated and cohesive. For example, when it's engaging in jet propulsion, it, it turns itself into a missile, the arms are stretched out 
for a streamlining effect and you know off it goes as very much a single a single total beam. unity of purpose in that moment or at least much more yeah. yes yes but but other times the arms seem to be operating independently that's, that's just so that's cool. how it looks there's this just this meandering this meandering exploratory thing that the arms sometimes do that's incredibly cool what you're talking about there. I think we're becoming increasingly aware of how sophisticated octopuses are when it comes to their, their thinking. Many of us saw that Netflix show, My Octopus Friend, but there was also that experiment in the 50s, wasn't there, where an octopus was shown to be able to operate a lever or open the jam jar. What did we know about their ability to remember and how they might use a memory to anticipate the future? Like, if I go to this part of the reef... On Tuesday afternoon, I'll find lots of yummy things to eat there. Starting with the the classic experiments like that one in the 50s, they were informative, I, th- I think, in two separate ways. What people did was, and it was natural to do this around this time, they began to adapt experimental approaches that were normally used with birds and rats and you know, pigeons and rats and things like that. Can they learn to do an action because it's rewarded? Can they l- learn to do an action under very specific circumstances because it will be rewarded then and not otherwise and so on. This was all done under the influence of the behaviourist psychology of, of Skinner, who was really a, a, a giant, somewhat unfortunately, a, a giant of psychology in the mid-20th century. And a guy called Peter Jews thought, well, well, we'll try this with octopuses. Can they learn to pull a lever for a reward? And the outcome was, I think, doubly interesting. Firstly, because the short answer is yes, they, they, they can learn something simple like that. But the long answer is the sort of regularity and predictability that you see with other animals in these experimental setups, you know, where a, a pigeon will peck at a, a light or an object over and over again to get a reward in a very reliable, repeatable way. Octopuses have no interest in that kind of stuff. Uh, they... they tend to become interested in the experimental apparatus, the circumstances of the tank and the testing. So in the old 1950s experiment, one particular octopus, there's much variation across individuals, just essentially took the whole apparatus apart. It, 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 it got the lever, bent it out of position, made it unusable, squirted water at the experimenters, just caused no end of trouble. And that's that's been the way that a lot of this experimental work has gone. When they when they set their minds to it, they can do simple sorts of problem solving, though they're not Einsteins in the way that's sometimes suggested. But for an octopus, there's often much more interesting stuff that might be done messing with the experiment and the experimenter. See, I think cats and dogs can be mischievous in terms of they, they, get, they indulge in certain kinds of behaviour. I've seen this firsthand, which seem to amuse them. What you're describing there, an octopus dismantling a machine, that seems like mischievousness. Or is that, again, me projecting my human stuff onto another creature? I think the exploratoriness is real. And I don't think it's particularly a problematic projection because you know octopuses are predators and they're interested in all sorts of different food sources. Their favourite foods are crabs and, and things like that. But they can learn that all sorts of things are food sources. And given that, you know, approach to foraging and eating, it makes sense to be exploratory, to be interested in novel things, to take things apart, to see if what you're encountering is actually a shell with food inside it. The exploratoriness and the inquisitiveness, ah. I think, is quite real and makes ecological sense. I don't think of this as a a mere piece of anthropomorphism. Right. So this this kind of dismantling the lever and the, the device, that's a form of it's complex pragmatism then in a funny sort of way. Is that what you're saying? Like you pull it apart because you don't know what you might find. It might be a good thing. It might tell you something about what you need to know to live in the world. Is that what you mean? I think all animals are pragmatists to a fair mm. extent. So I wouldn't single out the octopuses as uh, no, the pragmatists saying, of the what, animal kingdom. But it's a pragmatic talk- orientation to the... To the situation, yes. Yeah, so what I might take for mischievousness is really a, a sophisticated form of pragmatism, I suppose, is I what see, I'm saying. I see, right. A, a contrast between mischief for its own sake mm. and a kind of goal-directed yeah, exploration. Yeah, 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 I think that's probably most likely. Now, we've all seen videos of cuttlefish uh, changing colours dramatically, often as camouflage to fit into their local surroundings and maybe as a, I don't know, a courtship display. Are they the only reasons cuttlefish change colour? 
It's unclear. There's uh, almost certainly, well, probably an initial role of colour change in cephalopods that has the function of camouflage. And cam cephalopods are always being hunted by other animals. Lots of lots of creatures in the sea find them delicious. They're squishy. They have squishy, no, no shell. Bones, no no bones. Yeah, Can't nice. defend themselves very well. So camouflage is probably, is thought to be the initial reason that colour change capacity evolved. But once you've got that, then, and once it's sophisticated, for example, once you can change colour in real time, as, as these guys can, when you're looking at an octopus or a cuttlefish, there's a direct control line or lines going from the brain to the skin. The, the, the skin is an immediate reflection of what's going on in the, in the brain. And once you're doing that, perhaps initially for camouflage, it's natural to put it into service for signalling, uh, in a courtship situation and other situations, um, also to scare off potential threats, as may have been happening in that that first incident <laughs> that we talked yeah, about. Yeah. So once you've got it, it's natural to press it perhaps into all sorts of different additional roles. This is... Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Now, you and some colleagues recently published some research on octopus, what I would call octopus violence. You might call it something else. I don't know. Tell me the kind of behaviour we're talking about here when, when we're talking about this kind of behaviour. We, we saw this behaviour at a particular site uh, at Jervis Bay, down, down the south coast of New South Wales. Very unusual site, really close to unique or perhaps unique. Why is that? Uh, well, octopuses, when you encounter them, if you, for example, you go snorkelling or diving around Sydney or up and or up and down the coast, you'll usually see them one at a time or occasionally two at a time. They're, they're pretty solitary animals for the most part. And the stereotype for years was that octopuses are essentially completely antisocial across all or almost all species. Now, there are some exceptions to that. There's a growing exception, list of exceptions to that. And a site that was discovered by a friend of mine, Matt Lawrence, uh, while he was exploring unusual parts with respect to diving in Jervis Bay is particularly important because the densities there, the numbers of animals that you see are very unusual. You'll often see a dozen octopuses in a pretty small area, just a couple of metres in diameter. I think the largest number that we've seen is about 14. When Matt first discovered the site, I think he may have been even seeing more than that. But is this for mating though? Are they, aren't they just congregating to mate? No, it's it's Ooh. it's certainly not necessary for them to congregate to mate. And what we think is happening is the following. There's there's a single object that is at the centre of this area, this high-density area, which we think was probably a human-made object of some sort dropped into the water a long time ago. It's very encrusted with life. We don't know what it really is. But it's special because... At this part of Jervis Bay, there's essentially unlimited food for octopuses. There's heaps of food, but it's very dangerous. There's predators of many kinds. There's seals, several kinds of sharks, dolphins. These all love to eat octopuses. And the fine, silty sand at Jervis Bay is not very good for building dens. It, it's, it's just too fine. It collapses. At this particular spot, we think one den site became a very good one because of this object in the middle, the octopuses, well, we know some of this and some of it we're conjecturing, but the octopuses who live there, they bring in scallops to eat because lots of scallops and they leave the shells lying around. Now, once octopuses have been doing that for a while and the shells have accumulated, that's a much better building material than the fine sand that was there at the start. So you have a kind of positive feedback process where the more octopuses who hang out in that little area. The more scallops they bring in, the more shells get left. The more they feed, the more bricks for the den. Is that, that what you're saying? That's right. And what you have now is a situation where there's many thousands of scallop shells 
And <laughs> those provide opportunities to make excellent dens. Some of the dens there, if you stick a tape measure down them there, it's a sort of 50 centimeter shaft that's it's really straight, lined with shells, carefully carefully built. And that's a perfect place for an octopus to live. Are you telling me they're building a city down there, are they? <laughs> inadvertently. Inadvertently. Right. It's not a city in the sense of human construction. No, where it's architecture, though, and, and it's residents and all those things, you know. It's more opportunistic. It's more, mm. you know, imagine a situation where you just sort of bring home stuff to eat, mm. not for any reason except because you want to eat it, but the refuse, the stuff that gets left around is, as it turns out, a perfect building material. Right. KFC boxes turning, you can turn into a shelter of some kind. And you wind up yeah. with more individuals coming to live in this little area because you can be safe there. And they bring their scallops in they and they eat their them. Scallops in. They, they, they dump the refuse and yeah. there's more stuff there to make a, a den from. So, so they socialise there, but does that mean they get on each other's nerves? Right, yes. I should also emphasise, we don't know the history of the site. We don't know whether it is true. But this is apparent. That there this, was this gradual right. bringing in of shells yeah. and the gradual improvement of the den building possibilities. But that's our conjecture. That's our hypothesis. And I think it's, it's fairly likely. And then they have to, they have to deal with each other. And we don't know how unusual the circumstances are. We don't know whether octopuses uh, of this species, this is the gloomy octopus, the, the local Sydney octopus, called gloomy because of its, what are thought to be its somewhat world-weary eyes. <laughs> we, we don't know whether this circumstance is very unusual or just a bit unusual uh, for this species. Let's suppose it's very unusual. Then you're an octopus and you move into an area and you build a den and you find, oh, my God, there's a lot of octopuses around here. Yeah, I know the neighbours, right. And they're, mm. they're right under my nose. They're in my face. Now, a lot of mating happens at this site. So you do – there's a lot of sexual goings on. There's matings. There's attempts by some males to exclude other males from the site and things like that. There, there is a lot of uh, a kind of local sexual politics at the site. But even among females and even among – just among octopuses who are not concerned with that – they've just got others around them that they have to deal with. And we see a mixture of behaviours. One thing that we're very intrigued by is a behaviour in which, as an octopus comes onto the site, sort of trots onto the site, there'll be a series of sort of arm reaches and arm pokes as it goes past other octopuses. And we don't know if that's a recognitional thing. It's, oh, it's Bob. Or whether it's a, just a recognition of the sex of the individual. Or perhaps it's a kind of, look, here's me, I'm here, don't forget that. Or get out of my face. Sometimes it, 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 it reaches that appearance where it does look like get out of my face. Uh, you can get little wrestles and pummels between the animals. How do they, how do they pummel each other? What, with a rolled up tentacle or something or what? <laughs> Seriously. Just, just a lot of arms going at it. I, I gave a talk on octopuses in the UK a few years ago and there was a woman there, Miranda Mowbray was her name, a computer scientist. And she saw some of my videos and she said afterwards, oh, right, I see. A, a fight between octopuses is like a giant pillow fight between pillows. And <laughs> it does look a little bit like that. There's just stuff going right, everywhere. No harm done, really, in other words. Right, no harm done. That's true. I've, with all the sort of wrestling, pummeling, grappling that we've seen between octopuses at this site, I've never seen one get seriously injured. What about rocks? Do they throw rocks at each other, though? Okay, the throwing, yeah. This is our most recent paper that just came out a few weeks ago. And it's very hard to interpret the details of the behaviour, but it's very interesting. What we've seen quite often is a situation where an octopus will gather in its arms lots of stuff, and sometimes it's shells, sometimes it's silt from the bottom, from the bottom of the den often, Sometimes it's a mixture of that plus seaweed and things like that. Okay, firstly, they gather stuff and they expel it in a kind of jet-propelled throw where it's released from the arms and the jet propulsion device the animal has is brought under the body in an unusual position and used to expel the material. Oh, so they force. blast it, do they? It's a sort of, yeah, it's an right. arm-guided blast. It's right. A, if if I, you threw a rock at me underwater, it wouldn't hurt at all. But if you're blasting it, that's something else, isn't well, it? Well, it's very short range. I mean, you, yeah. you can throw things at very short range underwater. Yeah. But right, blasting is different. And they're using the same jet propulsion device they use to move. Now, we think of this as a throw-like behaviour because of the involvement of the arms. But in general, 
the force comes from the from the jet, the siphon, the jet propulsion. Oh, it's like device. firing shrapnel then. It, yeah. It's a bit like gathering a bunch of mm. stuff, shrapnel in your arms, mm. holding it, and then releasing it and blowing really right. hard. Wow! As you let it go, and, and does it can, can that do harm to another octopus? Well, th- th- there are lots of these throw type or blast type behaviors. And some of them hit other octopuses. A majority don't. It's it's a s- relatively small number that hit other octopuses. But this is, of course, very intriguing because it looks in some cases as if it's a deliberate use of this stuff as a kind of... It's projectile use. It's, it's use of a projectile with some kind of social role. And the point of this recent paper was to go through all the evidence we could pull together to try to work out whether some of these throws are targeted on other individuals. And I don't think it's certain. Uh, I do think it's more likely than not that they are targeted. And there's various reasons we think that. Uh, but typically this behaviour is territorial, isn't it? And I, I'm, I'm kind of come, I am going to come back, I know you don't like it much, but I'm going to come back to my city reference here because it does sound like a place where they congregate in large numbers, they build architecture, and there's more sex and violence going on than there is normally when you're out in the countryside. Uh, it, it does sound like that to me. There is more sex and violence in part just because you're encountering more individuals. In, yeah, indeed, and you're also living at closer quarters, therefore yeah. perhaps there is a need for territoriality or is there something else going on there possibly? I'm cautious about that word because at this site and elsewhere, octopuses do have their den for a while, but not with great fidelity. They wander around, they get, they go into different dens. A, a particular den is not a sort of valued possession. Then what are we talking about here? Are you interested in the fact that this might be rage? I doubt if it's rage. I mean, if, if, if an octopus is, wants to attack another octopus, they will. And this is not a very effective form of aggression. It does have effects. When an octopus is hit by a load of shells or silt, they're sort of taken aback and they, they're obviously disrupted in, in their behaviours. But it's not, it's not a, anywhere near as aggressive as some things that they do. So have you got an hypothesis for what's going on here then? I, I th- it's hard to know. My preferred way of describing it is to think some of it concerns the octopus equivalent of personal space. Mm. There's just, you know, I'm doing my stuff here. Oh. This other one is way closer than I would like it to be. And they're adapting this den cleaning behavior because a lot of the throws that they do are just den maintenance. Octopuses are quite fastidious in maintaining their dens. I think sometimes they're adapting that in a kind of interpersonal or inter, inter-octopus way and tossing stuff at an individual who's bothering them. If I'm going to use another terrible human analogy, so it's not so much about keep out of my apartment, it's more like don't get too close to me on the subway or don't get too close to me in the street, that kind of thing. Don't stand right in my face. Yeah. In some cases, there are females throwing stuff and hitting males who have been bothering them or attempting a mating. And it looks sometimes as if it's a, I'm not interested response by the female. Now, I should be careful about that because we've seen cases where a female will throw a bunch of stuff at a male who's trying to mate with her, hit the male, the male persists, and in at least one case, the female eventually did mate with that individual. So it's hard to interpret the behaviour. But I get out of my face, a get out of my face interpretation, I think, is, is not a bad one. How do they mate? Often at long distance. Uh, really? Yeah. The, the males have one of their arms, the third right arm, is specialised for mating. It has a groove that runs on the underside. It's hard to tell which sex octopuses are, and often it's by w- looking at matings or, or looking at this part of the anatomy that we can work out that someone's a male. In lots of cases, the male will set itself up maybe you know, a couple of feet away from the female, stretch out the arm and try to introduce the arm into her mantle, into a particular spot, and if she's okay with that, the male will pass a packet of sperm along the duct on the underside of the arm. Doesn't sound like there's pleasure in that for them. Probably not, yeah. It's no. probably not one of the more romantic or pleasurable forms of oh, animal Oh, well, no wonder right they're throwing stuff around it again. <laughs> Frustration. They have short lifespans, don't they, octopuses and cuttlefish? Yes, this, this fact just amazes me every time I, 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 I think about it. They have very short lives. When I first began to hang out with those cuttlefish at Cabbage Tree Bay, I interpreted them as old. I thought, oh, yes, this is a, you know, an oldish animal. It's large. Yeah. It seems to be familiar with having people around. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll probably get to visit these guys for years. And then I found out that 
with respect to both giant cuttlefish and most octopuses, they're they're dead within two years. The lifespan tends to be one to two years. In one those, to two years? One to two years total from when they're born. They rush through their lives, very short life. I wonder then, this is pure hypothesis once again, that if they if they lived as long as a human, I wonder if their, their behaviour would become more sophisticated as they absorb the lessons of life and time goes by and they get more worldly wise, if that's the phrase to use. Do you wonder about that? I, I do. And I, th- I think there's two interesting things to think about here. One is just the individual having a longer life. Imagine an octopus who could live for 30 or 40 years. Imagine what sort of experiences and skills and knowledge they would accumulate. There's also the fact that an octopus never meets their parents, pretty much. The, the way it works is that the female broods the eggs, it lays the eggs, broods them, looks after them fastidiously, very carefully, um, through to the time of hatching. And then when the eggs hatch, the little octopuses drift away as plankton, essentially, and the mother dies very soon after. So there's no intergenerational learning or assistance or teaching or, or, or care once the egg has hatched. So different from mammals. Mm. Yeah. All the experience accumulated by the mother oh. octopus is just gone. When and the so next they're not taught is what you're start. saying, in they're other not, words. There's not even a scrap of that. Oh. So it's interesting to think, firstly, about a longer life and secondly, about some intergenerational overlap. Several years ago, there was an experiment where some scientists gave four octopuses some samples of the party drug ecstasy, MDMA. What do you know about that? Why that was done? Pretty much a curiosity-driven experiment. Background here is the fact that, to a surprising degree, the hormones and brain chemicals and neurotransmitters uh, that we find in us are found in many other animals and are shared across much of the animal kingdom. Now, in the case of the comparison between us and octopuses, you have that enormous evolutionary distance. You have the fact mm. that, I don't know if we talked about that this figure earlier, but when, when I say we're far from them, in order to get back to a common ancestor of you and an octopus, you've got to go back something like 600 million years. And what would that ancestor be? little worm probably, a oh. little flattened worm, maybe a centimetre long. We don't know, but that's, that's the sort of picture that that people have. So then the likelihood that that ecstasy would have an effect on an octopus, well, there's no likelihood of that at all, is there, I suppose? Right. That's that's the question. If you have that amount of separation Mm. between us and them, is there any reason to expect drugs to have similar effects on us and them? Is there any reason to have, to expect drugs to have any effect on them that they, that have effects on us? And as it turned out, ecstasy had quite a similar looking effect on the octopuses really? to what? the effect it has on people that made them a bit more gregarious and friendly, a bit less antisocial in the way that octopuses tend to be, uh, just, as, uh, just as you see in the case of humans. This brings us to, I think, interesting question about these experiments. When the ecstasy experiment was done, I wrote a blog post about it and some people wrote in to me saying, look, you should be condemning this cruel experiment. And on the one hand, I don't think it was a cruel experiment by our normal standards. I doubt if the octopuses physically suffered very much from from this experience. I think that lots of experiments done historically on octopuses have been terribly cruel. But with that one and with the possibility of LSD and other drugs, there is something discomforting, I think, about doing this. There's a kind of... I mean, the word I find myself reaching for, there's something profoundly sort of undignified in what the octopuses are being made what, what the animals are being made to deal with. What kind of dignity do we imagine right. an octopus would have? It's a weird word. It's both a weird word to use in this context, but somehow it's a word that seems a description of what's, what's not quite right about those experiments. So with all these years, Peter, of studying cephalopods like octopuses and cuttlefish and how they think and how they behave and hypothesising about what kind of minds they might have, what do you know now about consciousness? Yeah. What do you begin to apprehend then? The part of my picture that's changed as a consequence, not just of the cephalopod work, but some other work being done on invertebrate animals at the moment, some work on lobsters and other crustaceans, some work on bees. The picture that I'm getting is that there is a lot more experience, a lot more experiencing beings in the world than we had thought. 
there's just more of it around. There's more, more aspects of our surroundings have their own point of view, their own felt lives. They're not merely objects that, you know, go through certain processes and, and do things. They're, ob they're, they're systems that, that feel some of what happens to them. They feel their lives. I find it pretty much inescapable now to think that octopuses are sentient beings, that they have a kind of, um, and the word consciousness is often used here, and it, it's a word I don't like that much, but a minimal kind of consciousness, I think, is probably present in these animals. I think it's present in giant cuttlefish. I think it's present in lots of crustaceans and some other invertebrates. And here's what I'm thinking about, especially right at the moment. There's probably a very much a kind of shading off. There's not a light switch. It's not a situation, I think, where some animals are conscious and some aren't, and there's just a, the lights are either on or off. We have to somehow grapple with the idea of, of a gray area, of a graded presence of this feature in nature. And once you ask that question, you've got to start thinking about, you know, where the gray area stops. How do we think about plants, um, other sorts of organisms that don't have nervous systems? Once you have a, a sort of gradualist view, does the whole world start to take on a kind of quasi-experiential hue or something like that? So you see the world quite differently, well, in no, other words. And I don't think... I. Just then I was describing the sort of far reaches of this change in picture, and that's not what I think. I'm trying to make sense of a picture in which lots of animals have experience, many more than we thought. There's lots more experience around us than has historically been supposed, but not everything, not everything in the world. I think probably not plants. I think, I think they're just, they live quite differently from animals. I think that experience is an animal feature, but a feature of many more animals. Well, I, I, I'm, I think we're now in a space where we can only just sort of ask each other questions, really. Um, the octopus, the cuttlefish, it sounds to me like they're the closest thing we can have at the moment, pretty much to a full-on alien encounter. They're so different from us. Our common ancestors go so far back to what sea worms, as you say, these tiny flat sea worms. They're a kind of thinking creature that is so utterly different to us. It is the closest thing we can have at the moment to an alien encounter. Does it make you wonder, suspect, that consciousness is something intrinsic to life at a very basic level? And if we were, if life, certainly the life or some other kind of life was discovered on another planet, you would be on some kind of a path towards consciousness. Is that a, que is that a valid question to you? It's a valid question. I think plant life is probably different. And you could, we could go to a planet, find a bunch of life and think, right, they're not really going down the animal road here. They're going down the plant road. Now, once you've got plants, you might expect evolution to start to produce animal-like beings as well. And organisms that live in the animalish way as well as a plantish way. But I can imagine a situation where, you know, we land on the planet, there's heaps of life, but it's just not going down the road of perception, action, memory, sensitivity, the animal road. At the start, you mentioned you've been visiting certain giant cuttlefish. I like that word, visiting. That's a social call. Do the cuttlefish see it as a social call? Do they, are they go, oh, there you are. Oh, there, there's, there's that fellow again. There's that creature again. Oh, it's nice to see him again. Well, firstly, it is true that octopuses, starting with octopuses rather than cuttlefish, it does appear they can recognise individuals. They can recognise individual humans. There was an experiment done some years ago where um, the, the question was, can an octopus learn to distinguish different people in a lab or aquarium setting? And the okay. answer was yes. Okay. Well, do you think there's a relationship there is what I'm asking? So once you believe that they might be able to recognise individuals, then there's the question, if I visit a giant cuttlefish day after day in a particular spot under a ledge at Manly, if I'm sure it's the same individual, which I sometimes am, sometimes not, what do I think the repeated encounters mean from the animal's point of view? I think it's a scientific question, a very hard one to, hard one to make progress on. In at least one case, I've been fairly confident that the animal became more, became accustomed to my presence 
was inclined to come out and look closely at me more readily in the later meetings than the earlier meetings. I don't want to say much more than that. You know, it, this is fairly impressionistic, although I think the question is real. I, I suspect that they do, in some cases, have firstly a, a sort of mild interest in a diver, and in some cases, perhaps a, a mild positive interest in, in an individual. Have you seen them express what seems to you to be delight? No, no. I mean, delight, I think delight is a hard one for these animals. Uh, Have you seen them light up in a, in a way that's for no apparent purpose other than for enjoyment? Oh, yeah. You see lots, lots of very puzzling explosions of colour. There was a particular individual who I christened Matisse after the artist who occasionally used to just produce these radiant whole body yellow patterns, just really a canary yellow, beautiful yellow, out of nowhere for no apparent reason. Now, people have described yellow colour patterns on cuttlefish before as being something like perhaps an expression of alarm or something like that. I don't think that was true in this case. It seemed to be there's no other signs of alarm. It was a spontaneous explosion of yellow and if you ask why the animal did that i have no idea maybe it just likes feeling yellow and i say feeling yellow because they're, they're colorblind aren't they that's another mystery the <laughs> fact that almost all cephalopods are thought to be and anatomically should be colorblind but in the case of octopuses i've got to say i don't really believe it uh, they, they can be so good at matching the hue of their skin to the background in some situations that I suspect there's a hidden mechanism somewhere. Well, I wish you all the best with your research with these fascinating strangers, which is what they are to us. Uh, it's been wonderful speaking with you, Peter, and thank you so much. It was a pleasure. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.